I'm Doug Gibson, and I spent my working life as an editor and publisher. I worked directly with some of Canada's greatest writers, editing books by people like Hugh McLennan, Morley Callahan, Robertson Davies, Alastair MacLeod, and, of course, Alice Munro. And then, after a very lucky and very happy career, I retired from McClelland and Stewart in 2008 and started to write books and talk about authors. Fasten your seat belts now, because we're going on an amazing journey covering 150 years of our greatest storytellers, our fiction writers. The way it works is this. I've divided the period up decade by decade. Each decade's podcast begins with a burst of Canadian music from the time. Then I'll talk briefly about what was happening in Canada then, and mention some iconic works of Canadian art from the time. So this is not just a tribute to our great writers, but more widely to our finest Canadian artists and to our history. The author choices, some of which you may not like, are all mine. They're very subjective and sometimes, no doubt, very wrong. Usually, but not always, I choose two great authors, one writing in French, one in English, per decade. I hope you'll find it interesting to hear about them and from them. So, with that introduction, let me start our first podcast in 1867 with something very different. That's the music of the Haida people, Goose, Owl and Loon, sung here by Fred Louis and Ella Thompson in their recording of Indian Music of the Northwest. Our first great storyteller is the Haida man Sky, given the English name John Sky, who lived on Haida Gwaii from roughly 1827 till around 1905. You may know Haida Gwaii by its old name, the Queen Charlotte Islands, and remember that it's way north in the Pacific. It's literally within sight of Alaska, as I found one bright sunny day near Masset with my friend James Houston. It's important to begin this series of podcasts by paying a tribute to our indigenous storytellers down through the ages. For thousands of years, we know, there were great storytellers in Canada. But because their stories were not written down, for many centuries the stories were hidden as if been told to just a small part of the forest. It was as if, for example, the great culture of the Haida people out in their northern Pacific islands had been kept secret, as if all of their astonishing totem poles had lain buried forever. And then the world had two strokes of luck. First, an American linguist named John Reed Swanton went to Haida Gwaii and soon learned that the people loved storytelling. He also learned that the greatest of the professional Haida storytellers 
was a former warrior named Sky, who, we should note, was at the height of his powers around 1867. And Swanton interviewed him with the help of a bilingual Haida interpreter named Henry Moody. Now please know that Skye, a former leading warrior now with a crippled back, was very keen to pass along his stories, carefully repeating them hour after hour to Moody to get them just right. Meanwhile, hour after hour, day after day, Swanton carefully transcribed the phonetic version of, of words in a language he was just beginning to learn for later translation when he got back east. Just think about that. Our second stroke of luck came a hundred years later when the Vancouver scholar Robert Bringhurst, a friend who helped me with this presentation, stressing that sky was just one of many fine indigenous storytellers all across what is now Canada, became fascinated by the Haida language. With the encouragement of his Haida friend, the sculptor Bill Reed, Robert immersed himself in it. And thanks to Swanton and Moody's work, he discovered Skye's own words preserved on yellowed papers stored away in an old archive and realised that in Skye we had a classic storyteller like Homer who deserved to be known around the world. Now, Robert Bringhurst is not only a linguist who once made his living translating Arabic, he's a fine poet. So he translated Skye's work into dramatic poetic language. We can all read it in one of Canada's most important books, A Story as Sharp as a Knife. But when it was published in 1999, it soon ran into trouble. Bringhurst was a white guy, yet here he was translating these Haida stories. Many irate people, indigenous and white, attacked him for cultural appropriation. Some places refused to sell the book once to me. Yet over time, many of his critics, almost none of whom knew the Haida language, since it's been estimated that there are fewer than 300 fluent Haida speakers still alive, actually read his book and realised that he had opened up a treasure chest of great storytelling, making it available to everyone in the world who could read English. The tide turned, and in June 2016, Robert Bringhurst received an honorary degree for his work from Simon Fraser University. But what were Skye's stories like? Well, one of them concerns a warrior leader named Gitkuna. Skye tells us that Gitkuna angered the gods of the sea and was advised to stay on shore. But one day, a silver sea otter swam into the harbour and in his canoe, Gitkuna had to have its amazingly attractive skin. Here's Skye 
in Bringhurst translation. Ho! Gitkuna took a crew of three men and they chased it. First he tried to shoot it in the harbour. Then it led him out to sea. The mist closed in on him at once then. And then they beat the drums for him at Kuna and pounded on the beach logs. After two days and nights of steady fog, dawn broke calm and clear. Some went out to search in the direction of Lake Inlet. Others went to search for him toward Rock Point. His paddle was the only thing they found. The second author I have chosen to represent our Dominion's birth year of 1867 is Philippe Joseph Aubert de Gaspé. He lived from 1786, born before the French Revolution, think of that, to 1871. The most important thing about him for us today is that he was a seigneur one of the traditional landed gentry who ran things in Quebec. In fact, he was at one point the magistrate who ran the old jail in Quebec City. You can still visit that jail in the Morin Centre in the heart of old Scottish Quebec. Now, I use that term because the Morin Centre was named for a Scottish doctor and it's on the Chaussée des Écossais, right beside the old St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and its Kirk Hall. Above the restored cells of the old jail, you can also visit the historic library, home of the very ancient Literary and Historical Society of Quebec. Speakers who have appeared there include, well, me, and a few years earlier, in 1844, a guy named Charles Dickens. Dickens knew all about debtors' prisons because his family was split up when he was 13 and his father went to debtors' prison in England. Believe it or not, the same outrageous debtors' prison laws applied in Canada. Incredibly, when our man, Aubert de Gaspé, fell into debt, he ended up in jail, his own jail, in those very cells. He spent four years in there, in a cell where he could look out and see his house across the street. Think about that. When eventually he got out, he resumed his life. After many years, he got in a huge supply of goose feather quills and started to write. Then, when he was 77 years of age, 77, he brought out the first great Canadian novel in French, Les Anciens Canadiens. The model here is not Charles Dickens, but the historical novelist Sir Walter Scott. This book is about two young friends from high school in Quebec who are destined to meet on opposite sides in the battle on the plains of Abraham. The young Scottish hero, opposed to his Quebecois friend Jules d'Aberville, is named 
Archibald Cameron de Lochiel. The book, first published in French in 1863, was an instantly popular classic and was soon translated into English and eagerly read for many years. It's a fine book, set on the south shore of the St. Lawrence at Saint-Jean-Port-Joli, roughly halfway between Quebec City and Rivière-du-Loup. Appropriately, you can visit the museum, La Musée des Anciens Canadiens, right there. Our young Scottish hero travels there from the Quebec City school to the Davaville family seigneurie, which is clearly modelled on Aubert de Gaspé's own. The young Scot gets to know the countryside and the family and the servants and the local characters very well. The lively writing involves history, traditional Quebec life and folklore, ghost stories, the ancient poisoner La Corriveau, and even the old party games the seigneurs played after dinner. It includes very exciting scenes like the one when a badly injured man is rescued by the Scottish hero from a floating ice floe in the St Lawrence when the ice goes out an event grandly called Le Débâcle. Its conversational tone seems very modern. Even the footnotes are fascinating. When we see historiquement, historical fact, we're likely to learn that this hard-to-believe plot twist actually happened to the novelist's grandmother. This is the first great Quebec novel and I'm happy to tell you that it provides very fine reading today. It set the tradition of Quebec fascination with the Ancien Régime and the Conquest, and was very widely read in 1867. So that's Philippe-Joseph Aubert de Gaspé, Sr., author of Les Anciens Canadiens. There is a recent English translation by Jane Brierley, entitled Canadians of Old. So, with that book, which was the most popular Canadian novel in 1867, we're reminded that on July 1st of that year, Canada became a country. The enthusiastic Canadian leaders planning to establish the new country had wanted it to be called the Kingdom of Canada. But British advisers cleared their throats to warn Sir John A. Macdonald and his allies that the anti-monarchist Americans might not like it. So one of the Canadian team, New Brunswick's Premier Leonard Tilley, found the following verse in the Book of Psalms in his well-thumbed Bible, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so the Dominion of Canada was born to great celebrations and a few protests across the new country. Although on the actual birthday, Sir John A. was disappointed that in Ottawa, the Governor-General, Viscount Monk, seemed to take the event less seriously than he might have and chose to dress informally. But of course, it was regarded as essential for Canada to have a minor British aristocrat 
as its Governor-General. It was not until 1952 that a homegrown Canadian, Vincent Massey, was appointed Governor-General, and he, a member of the Massey Manufacturing Company, was a graduate of Balliol College, Oxford, and so refined that one British peer, actually the leader of the House of Lords, complained privately that Massey was a fine chap, but made one feel like a, a bit of a savage. 1867 not only created Canada, it saw the Maple Leaf Forever, composed by Toronto's Alexander Muir. It is played here by the Brigade of Guards. Thank you. 